Funding for Still Newtown is made possible in part by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Pat Lodra was Newtown, Connecticut's top elected official, the first selectman, on December 14, 2012. And she had to make some big decisions. One of them was to set up a press staging area in Treadwell Park in Sandy Hook, down the road from the elementary school. It certainly, I mean, the, it looked to me like there were hundreds of satellite dishes. There probably weren't hundreds, but there were a lot. Uh, I mean, this was an event that was so horrific. Uh, it, it attracted news media from all over the world, and, and they quickly descended on it. And, and I got that. I understood. I was one of countless reporters at Treadwell Park. I was a recent journalism school graduate assigned to cover Newtown for an online news site. That was just two weeks before the tragedy. I remember the trucks with satellite dishes. It felt like hundreds to me, too. And big global news outlets. Some reporters were respectful. And some yelled questions at everyone they could, even if those people seemed to want their privacy. As a brand new reporter, I remember thinking, what should I do? I understand the role of reporters. I understand the job. I understand you got to, you have a job to do. My plea to them, what I said that day at that first news conference at Treadwell Park, please treat us fairly, be honest, because what you say will live forever. We're a good place. Be careful with us. This is Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. The Newtown Bee is a local paper that's covered Newtown for almost a century and a half. From its office right in the heart of town, the Bee publishes a print edition once a week with government news, local happenings, obituaries, events, everything you'd expect from a local paper. No journalists know the town better than the Newtown Bee. And that's why we ask them to be our media partners on this podcast. Their experience, their expertise, and historical knowledge are invaluable. For this episode, we wanted to explore how journalists cover a tragedy like the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. So to start, I sat down with some of the Bee's staff. They were among the first to arrive and still there after most left. And then, of course, they continued to cover all things Newtown. Give me your first and last name, spell it for me, and tell me your title. John, J-O-H-N, Voquet, V-O-K-E-T, uh, currently editor of the Newtown Bee. We've got 28,000 people that live here, and every person has at least two good stories in them. So we have a fairly robust well to go to. John Voquette says most of the best stories come to him and his reporters through word of mouth. We're sort of like, uh, uh, you know, priests at confessional or bartenders. I mean, people come to us and, and bounce stuff off of us because they trust what we know and who we know. And if we think it could be a story, then we, some, you know, we, we would uh, work with the source of the individual and say, well, how could we tell this story so that you could be a part of it? But no one could have prepared them for the story on December 14th, 2012. Managing editor Shannon Hicks was a staff photographer and associate editor back then. She remembers that morning. Somebody in the production department had just won a radio contest and we were, you know, doing the little Working happy dance. Yep. And I saw Curtis, our editor at the time, 
walked down the hall with a very serious look on his face. And my heart just went, oh dear, something's wrong. And I remember listening to the police, fire, and ambulance scanner. And they were talking about staging an ambulance at a church. Then they said something about a firehouse next to the school. So that told me that it was Sandy Hook Firehouse, Sandy Hook School. Newtown Bee editor John Voquette was also an associate editor then. He got a call from Shannon, then he sped to the scene and went to the firehouse next to the school, where children, parents, teachers, and others were gathered. And uh, running up to the scene and encountering one of the firefighters and individuals who I knew from town, and, and I was like, what's going on? And he was just like shaking his head. So that's when um, I, I looked up and I saw uh, Pat Lodra and she was like, waved me in and I walked up and I said, well, what's going on? Shannon Hicks left the office in the morning to go to the school. She tells more of her story in episode one of Still Newtown, but eventually she needed to head back to the office. Now by this point, my Jeep was still in the parking lot up at the school It had yellow tape on its driver's side mirror going from one of the fire engines to the Jeep and then across the parking lot. It was basically being used as a sawhorse to block off the area. So I had to find a ride back to the office. And it was a short time after I got back to the office that you called me directly and hinted at how bad things were and what we were about to learn. And uh, it was Pat Lodra who gave me the number. 20 students and six educators. I remember when John called me and gave me that number and I said, no, that can't be right. That was my response, even knowing that he would not have told me that. I know John better than that, but something like this, you're not going to kid about. But I remember you telling me. It was surreal. It was. And I said, no, that can't be right. But it was. John spent most of the day inside the firehouse. He talked to parents, teachers, others. He fielded calls from community members and news outlets around the world who wanted the local perspective. Then when he came out... I had no idea what was going on on the outside until near dark. I remember walking out of the firehouse and it being like daylight from all of the uh, the trucks, not just emergency vehicles, no, but media crew. media vehicles too. Yep. Uh, there was that wherever the media could be allowed to stand, they were standing, and it was getting dark, so they had their big, bright, uh, you know, uh, illumination on. See For why. even at that point, TV station uh, trucks were starting to park on both sides of Lower Churchill Road. That's the main road that connects Sandy Hook Center to the rest of Newtown. And finally, getting home and knowing it was going to be on every single channel and before I went to change clothes, uh, you know, looked in at the TV and and saw it was on and just wanted to turn it off and try to unstick my brain from it so I could get a good night's rest because I knew this was going to be the beginning of like, you know, journalism siege behavior. Uh, You know, I I didn't know when I was going to get another solid night's sleep again because I knew what the implications of this were going to become. Shannon made sure not to turn on the TV at all. 
because we already knew that things were coming out that were that were wrong. But I also felt like it was one of those times where you have multiple media organizations covering a press conference, or in this case, a terrible event. And I didn't want anybody else's writing to uh, affect me, even mm. subconsciously. So we didn't have the TV on for weeks at our house. But Shannon couldn't help but notice the trucks and camera crews in town every time she left her house. Boy, the media presence was not only heavy, but it was oppressive. I remember some of the Sandy Hook Center businesses saying, hey, come on, please don't park in my lot. Don't leave your truck here all day. And then I started hearing how reporters were showing up because they were able to access victims' addresses and, and going to the houses and like, you know, total paparazzi type of uh, mentality on the part of, I'm sure, a non-representative few. However, those are the incidents that you hear about because that's, that's what happened. Those are the people who give media a bad name. Right. Again, here's Pat Lodra, the former first selectman. After a while, members of our community started to feel very antagonistic because it became intrusive. You couldn't go to the deli, you couldn't go to the market, you couldn't go to the cleaners, and there'd be somebody there with a microphone. For the most part, again, respectful. And I think it was the first year afterwards that you put out a statement on that. She publicly asked news outlets to stay home on the day that marked the first year after the shooting, not to send reporters to Newtown. She asked for privacy. When the media is so present, it impedes healing. You want to be able to just be who you are. And that means to show your grief and your upset and not always be perfectly poised and saying the right thing all the time. You know, you need to just be left alone. So there came that time that we had to say that to like, we're done talking to you. Thank you. But we're done. So please, please, we're we're not going to talk to you anymore. Just go away. I remember a homemade sign posted by the side of the road as I drove into town. Vulture Media, you got your tapes. Are you happy? Please leave. Shannon Hicks of the Newtown Bee says the tragedy dominated the paper's front pages for months. Eventually, it started getting back to the usual board meetings and community events. That wasn't planned. It just happened over time. I did have friends telling me that they couldn't read the paper for a while. They they didn't cancel it, they would get it in the mail, but they would put it right into the recycle bin because reading the Newtown paper was too much for them. It was too many reminders. But as far as a conscious plan, no, I don't think we had it. I think the plan was to just keep being the hometown paper that we have been. John Voquette again. I never thought at the time anything I did would play a role in anybody's healing process. Perhaps it was an an unconscious thing. Even in bad situations, I tried to find the positive. There wasn't much in the immediate hours, but in the days and weeks to come, there were magical, beautiful, wonderful people and things that happened. And uh, it was great to be able to tell those stories as well. This is still Newtown. When we come back, how one journalist took a personal trauma and used it to help others report on trauma. If you find Still Newtown compelling, you'll want to listen to a series from Colorado Public Radio called Since Columbine. 
I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. But prior to that, you knew every April I would go to the school and you would always ask, why, why are you going there? And I was like, this is a, a s- sad day for mommy. And, you know, someday I'll share it with you. In 2019, reporters Nathaniel Miner and Andrea Dukakis reported on the 20th anniversary of the Columbine High School shooting, how survivors found a way to move forward, and how the tragedy changed the country. Since Columbine from Colorado Public Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. Bruce Shapiro started his career as a local reporter in the early 1980s in Fairfield County, Connecticut. That's where Newtown is. You know, I always, as a reporter, found myself covering a lot of human pain and suffering. As a young reporter, you don't really understand until you've done it for a while just how central violence and trauma can be to the news agenda. The first story I ever covered as a student journalist in Chicago involved the death of a young woman from a gas leak in an apartment building around the corner from where I lived. I can still see her face from her photographs. In the summer of 1994, Bruce Shapiro found himself covering the largest crime bill in United States history. Uh, In the middle of covering a very heated national debate on this, I was um, badly injured in a mass stabbing in New Haven, just a couple of blocks from my house at at a coffee shop. Someone who was having a psychotic episode pulled out a hunting knife and stabbed seven people, including me. I went from being the reporter covering crime to being the survivor of a violent crime, the victim of a crime who was reported on interviewed, whose injuries and experience were related in the press, sometimes well, sometimes badly. And that got me very interested in the whole question of how, as journalists, we approach these most difficult stories. Bruce helped found the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in New York City. The DART Center is a convening point for news professionals around the world who want to enrich our toolkit and our capacity for reporting ethically and effectively on violence and its aftermath. As a young reporter, I certainly didn't get a lot of special training or skills in how to talk to bereaved families or how to depict horrific events or in how to take care of myself. The DART Center works with psychiatrists, psychologists, and other trauma clinicians. Bruce remembers when he first started to go into actual newsrooms to talk about trauma. Invariably, a hand would go up in the back of a newsroom and it would be some grizzled night and weekend cops reporter who had covered every bad event in the city of Seattle for 25 years. And they would say, you know, that sounds a lot like me. There aren't many local journalists who have covered something like the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, and even fewer who've covered it twice, like Dan Katz. Dan was a producer at WSHU on December 14th, 2012. He was 23 years old. I remember this one line from the AP Newswire that just read, active shooting, 
at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Nothing else. And we knew we had to send a reporter right away. Dan covered the shooting from the newsroom in Fairfield, Connecticut, while WSHU reporters were in the field. We made an effort to report the news a little bit slower, um, to not get conflicting information out there, which would be really difficult for people to hear. And, you know, we also tried to not be part of the media circus that was going on in Sandy Hook at the time. You know, when reporters went into the community and spent time in the community, we wanted to be very sensitive and really blend in. Dan eventually became WSHU's news director. He was my boss for years. He left in 2018, and he became the news director at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. And that's where he was earlier this year, when there was an elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Dan coordinated his newsroom to report on the story, which meant for the second time in his career, he was covering a mass shooting in an elementary school. Sandy Hook had a little bit more of a circus earlier because you had the New York media outlets there. In Uvalde, it was a little different. It's a more rural, remote place, and there's not a lot of media To set the stage here, it's basically um, halfway between San Antonio and the border along a small road called Highway 90. Dan's reporters had to drive more than 80 miles to get from the station to Uvalde. So when we sent a reporter who had to drive the hour and a half, we were, you know, doing research from the newsroom and trying to confirm whatever we could with, you know, local authorities, with the FBI, San Antonio field office, with anyone we could reach out to. The reporting of the story took a lot of twists and turns. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said 14 students and one teacher had died. It turned out the number was higher, 19 students and two teachers. The next day, Governor Abbott praised law enforcement and said the shooting could have been a lot worse. But soon it became clear that police mishandled their response and waited for over an hour to confront the shooter. When I found that out, I knew that the story was going to be in the national news every day and that... The community and the victims' families were going to have a fight on their hands for accountability. Months later, details are still being sorted out, and blame argued over. Dan says it was hard for his team to dig out the facts among all the chaos, but that made it all the more important to connect with locals in Uvalde. The main things I learned from covering Sandy Hook and how it applied to Uvalde, it's the dedication to really building relationships in the community and you know, not parachuting in, but being there regularly. We lived Sandy Hook every day for years. And I guess the difference about this happening in your community is you feel a duty to the victim's families, to the community, and you feel like you're fighting with them. And so that's what keeps me going. But when you get a chance to stop and you're not in the process of writing, producing, editing stories, you just cry. I mean, it's really like, it's really awful. And I don't think most people know the kind of toll this takes on journalists, on the people trying to tell the story. There's a saying in Hebrew, it's called tikkun olam. And what it means is 
literally like fix the world, but we each have a weight on our shoulders to fix the world. It's not something that somebody else is going to do. And I would say reporting on these stories and making sure that people around the country can really walk a day in their shoes and just, you know, telling these stories correctly, it, it definitely does fuel me. The DART Center for Journalism and Trauma has guidelines for how to interview people who've gone through trauma and the kind of words and phrases to use in reporting those stories. Bruce Shapiro of DART says it's not easy for a reporter to know when they've crossed the line. Here's the question of trust. Local reporters spend a lot of time building up that trust. Bruce says the media swarm on a community can add to the feeling of being unsafe and out of control. And you know, the the nature of trauma is at bottom of a loss of control over one's own safety and the safety of one's own loved ones. And then when the streets of the town in turn feel like they're taken over by outsiders who have a need to get a whole bunch of people on camera or voices on air or pictures, uh, it, 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 it feels like one more thing that has gone horribly out of control. And that raises the question, as journalists, how do we acknowledge the passing of time for a tragedy, like now, 10 years after Sandy Hook? And whether you know, the constant repetition of images or the regurgitation of um, stories from a year earlier is the best way to do it, or if in fact there is a different kind of anniversary coverage that recognizes the diversity of victim experiences and community experiences that recognizes the need to tell the story without just exploiting grief and violence. Every year for the past nine years, on or around December 14th, I've filed a story. I'll admit I've spoken to some of the same people year after year. Some of the voices you hear in this series are people I've known and interviewed for years. But we've tried to make this series the second kind of story that Bruce is talking about. We've shared the experiences of some who remember that day, but we've also tried to show how far they've come since. Good anniversary coverage doesn't just bring you back to a day of tragedy. It charts recovery and resilience and ongoing suffering in all of its complexity. Good anniversary coverage doesn't lean too far into horrific or graphic images that may simply reawaken trauma without aiding understanding. And at the same time, we don't want to whitewash the horror of what happened. Bruce used a word there I heard a lot in my reporting, resilience. When I started to think about this podcast, I thought it would be about how the tragedy changed Newtown. But after more consideration, I came to realize that focus wasn't right. It's a story about resiliency, about how Newtown has come through and is still coming through. There's hurt, but there's also joy and love and kindness. The same things that mattered then still matter now. And it was that realization that led us to the name, Still Newtown. On the next Still Newtown, 
how one mother is turning a fallow farm into an animal sanctuary because her daughter loved every kind of animal. She did not discriminate, whether it was our family pet or a bug that she had, or a worm that she had pulled out of the ground. Still Newtown is sound designed by John Pino. Our fact checkers are Janet Curtis, Margaret Osborne, Melanie Formosa, and Mallory Lawrence. Our editor is Cindy Carpian. Our assistant producer is Sabrina Garone. Our interns, Paul Keegan, Megan Briggs, Isabella Giardina, and Hilary Jean Bart. The executive editors are Terry Sheridan and J.D. Allen. Our media partner is the Newtown Bee. I'm Davis Donovan.